Welcome to the journey, my friends. You are listening to the Planet Product Owner Podcast on your favorite listening platform. So sit back, buckle up, and let's journey to Planet Product Owner. Let's talk a little bit about acceptance criteria, shall we? I get questions on this topic pretty often. Uh, back in the old days when Agile and Scrum teams were starting to get some momentum in organizations and in shops, the idea was that every team struggled with what they meant by done. And I still see it sometimes in the field today, even with as much information and popularity and resources that we have with the methods and the mindsets of becoming agile. Being done requires us to have some definition for what we mean by done. And I've even seen some teams prescribe or describe and document done done, which there's no problem with that. But what I want to, I don't want you to do is confuse being done with being accepted because those are two different things. Accepted is what we mean really today when we talk about acceptance criteria and that's more at the story or the task level and even at the feature level for some of those of you who are working like a safe or a scaled agile world and done means that we've reached the end of our responsibilities and the work item meets some defined quality expectations before we can really ship it and so that's why the mark is that we're trying to hit is that of potentially shippable so what we're really kind of saying here is that there's two levels of what we call done. The first is that it's accepted, meaning this meets the expectations of what we were asked to do. And the next is done, meaning formal definitions around what's expected from a quality perspective. You can have something functioning that meets the goal, but it, it may suck, right? So uh, we want to have that final quality inspection. That's where we get a definition of done. So environment to environment, that's going to change. It's going to vary. Even within teams in the same organization, the definition of done may vary depending on kind of the makeup or the skill set, the environmental constraints, policies around release or change management, just to name a few. Um, and, and it even tells us in the Scrum Guide that the team is responsible for creating their own definition of done if one doesn't exist. And if one does exist, all teams must follow it. But keep empiricism in mind and at the heart of establishing the definition of done. So this is the stuff you really don't get in the books and the certs and all that jazz. And that's why I'm here to help you on your journey. You are listening to the go-to podcast for the product owner, the team, and yes, even the scrum master to help you develop the art of your practice with agility. And I want to say up front that I really appreciate the shares, the connections, the follows, the listeners, the supporters, and everybody here for telling your friends and coworkers about the Planet Product Owner podcast. And now our new YouTube channel. Yes, phase two is underway. So today we're going to focus on acceptance criteria rather than the definition of done. And we'll get to the definition of done in another episode, or at least I hope we will. For those of you who have been on the journey for some time now, I have coached you on some thinking patterns to help you in your practice. And today I hope to help you connect some dots on why have I have been so consistent and persistent and all those things on teaching you the strategies behind authoring user stories, because when I explain the elements of the acceptance criteria to you in this episode, over the next couple of segments, you're going to have a couple of aha moments. I'm pretty sure of that. So now let's uh, sit back, buckle up and get the planet product owner. What do we mean by acceptance criteria? Well, as you know, there's probably three things that I want you to know about acceptance criteria, right? So let's get into some basic groundwork here for those who may be a little new to the party, new to the journey, or just for those who need to be reoriented. And look, I hope your processes 
haven't driven you over a cliff because we do tend to overprocess things even when we become seasoned to the point where we're able to deliver successfully and on cadence and all of that good stuff. So let's start first with why we need acceptance criteria. You know, I'm going to start with the why, not the what. So why do we need acceptance criteria? So who accepts the work? If it's acceptance, then why do we need acceptance and who's doing that? Particularly if you're in a scaled agile or a safe environment, we think about the responsibility of accepting user stories, right? So who is responsible for that? In most organizations, we reinforce, and probably rightly so, right, that the product owner is responsible for this activity. And it makes sense to me because after all, they're the ones that are prioritized and place your higher value items into that backlog. So they must know what it will take for this thing to meet expectations when it's complete. Notice I said expectations. Hmm. I've harped on setting and managing expectations throughout this journey with you. And that's one of your aha moments I'm sure you're going to have today. One of many. Now, I have to remind you that if you're going by the book with the Scrum Guide, there's no mention of user stories. It does talk about product backlog items. So let's get to our favorite part of the show, shall we? I mean, we haven't done this in a while. And if you're new to the journey and you're just now listening in, it's been so long, and sometimes here at Planet Product Owner, I myself just have to get back to my roots and go old school. So here we go with a reading from the Scrum Guide. <clears throat> the product owner is also accountable for effective product backlog management, which includes developing and explicitly communicating the product goal, creating and clearly communicating product backlog items, ordering product backlog items, and ensuring that the product backlog is transparent, visible, and understood. Now, I know it may seem we're getting a little bit off topic here, but for those who are reading the guide, you're getting your certifications and all of that stuff. We got to acknowledge that these are the things that uh, should be the basis of how we operate, right? And so I think it's important to acknowledge that the product owner is accountable for ensuring that the product backlog is transparent, visible, and understood. Now, it didn't explicitly read responsible, but now I'm just getting a little ticky, right? <laughs> so let's just make this make sense to us and get into the real world for a minute, the real world we call Planet Product Owner. You know, you're on the hook for these tasks, and you know the team is looking for your leadership, right, to make the call on what you want, because you are the one prioritizing the most important product goals that will be collectively put together to make this thing come out and come to life, right? So you're the one that's on the balance beam between the business or the customer and the dev team or technology, right? So it's real simple here. When the user story template was put together for us by our faithful pioneer leaders in this field, the acceptance criteria was actually defined as notes about what the story must do so the product owner can accept it as complete, so now we're getting around the loop here, right? So really, if we boil this down and simmer on it, that's a saying in the South, we're just going to simmer on it. Uh, we're saying, hey, product owner, how will we know that this is meeting your expectations? Because we don't want to miss them. Remember, I told you that if you're an effective product owner, the team's going to usually consider making you happy because you are, again, standing in the gap between them and the customer. Now, before we get into some examples of good acceptance criteria, let's talk about some anti-patterns first. So... We can just level set on the expectations here, which brings me to the second thing you need to know about acceptance criteria. It's a shared understanding. So here are what I would consider to be some of the anti-patterns that I have observed that would probably prevent us from having a shared understanding. I've seen some product owners confuse 
uh, acceptance criteria and user stories with just attaching a business requirement document. Well, let me remind you that user stories are not business requirements, but they point to business requirements. I've seen some product owners type up a long list of vague descriptions and just a list of musts and shalls and wills and shoulds for their acceptance criteria. And oftentimes I really think this negates a shared understanding with the team. Now we're just putting policy in, right? Um, Cause must shall and will, those are policy type words, right? So I've seen product owners and you know who you are actually enter in technical details and specifications for the acceptance criteria. Uh Oh, that's a no, no. We say I've seen some product owners span across so many different processes for their acceptance criteria that there's no way they're going to be able to actually complete that story or demo the story in this iteration or time box or sprint. So we won't be able to accept it or call it done. And I'll just kindly refer you to a previous episode and corresponding videos for that matter on story sizing for that little ditty. So now we have an idea of what the anti-patterns are. And you may ask, hey, Scott, why don't you just tell me like I'm three years old what good acceptance criteria is? Well, the truth is I can't. The team really decides that. However, I will give you an analogy. Uh, and I think you're going to like it and it's going to make sense to you, I believe. Um, the third thing you should know, and, and, and I'll bring this around to you in this analogy in the next segment, acceptance criteria should be observable with testable outcomes for the story. Now, stay with me. Lots of things that you have hopefully learned from me in the lifespan of this podcast and your journey may just be connected here in the next segment. So stick around and I think you're going to love the way that I break this down. So stick with me here. I got four daughters. I've taught three of them how to drive now in my tenure of fatherhood. So let me tell you, that's just a scary time of life, man. Um, but when teaching them how to drive, they have to know the guardrails, right? The boundaries, the expectations, and how to be successful with just basic driving before they can go Mario Andretti on everybody, right? We start by demonstrating the proper behavior behind the wheel. So isn't that where we kind of all want to start, right? So we're going to give some basic functional and non, non-functional requirements like, okay, first put on your seatbelt, then adjust your rear view mirror. You know, the one up here. No, 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 this one, this one here, this one on top of your head, right? This lets you see what's behind you. Um, now check your side mirrors. Wait, no, these are the ones, the, these are the, these right here, right? So we adjust the mirrors. When we adjust the mirrors, then we can see what's around us. Keep in mind, she had no idea what a rear view mirror is. We had to define that. And since you were listening to this all across the world, you may not even call it a rear view mirror, but in the South, we call it a rear view mirror. And that's okay. We have our domain language and you have yours. Closing the loop here for you. Now, we show them how to put the key in. But wait, what's a key? If the key is in the ignition, and now, of course, it's a key fob because my 16 year old is just a little bit spoiled. So this is a key fob and this is what it does. Wait, did you say key fob? What's a fob? What's a key? More domain language, right? This is the brake pedal. So if the key fob is in the car, when you push this button with your foot on the brake, then the car starts. If you don't have the fob in the car, the car won't start. If you don't have your foot on the brake, the car won't start. See how simple that is? What I'm describing to you, faithful journeyers, is a way to describe the behavior so that she understands the outcome in small steps. I haven't told her yet how to merge on the interstate. I haven't given her the tip that she can just maybe cry when she gets pulled over by the officer and maybe get out of the ticket. I haven't done that yet. 
because that's happened several times. I haven't started with, uh, you know, teaching her how to accelerate or anything. Like I've just started simply with starting the car. I didn't tell her to change the oil. I didn't tell her to merge or move over when she sees an emergency vehicle. We just want to start the car. So she can't do any of those other things without starting the car first. And if she can at least start this car, that's a big win and it has value. And yes, it's usable because it helps us to lean toward progress to arrive at all of these other things that will sequentially follow to build on the overall outcome that we're seeking. I started with one scenario, start the car. There were a few definitions. There were a few preconditions, a few triggers, and a few post conditions based on her actual behaviors that were put together in a sequence that made sense to her. Now, product owners and journeyers, you see why I have been teaching you the ways of the master here using terms like scenario, precondition, trigger, postcondition, domain, and team language, right? The more we can train ourselves as product owners to think like that, the better storytelling we can do. And the better storytelling we can do, the better we become at developing this art of being a product owner and helping to develop high-performing teams. Now, let's compare and contrast for a minute. What if I just told my 16-year-old that she just had to drive to the store and come back home with her own bag of chips, right? My 16-year-old, who hadn't seen a key fob, she didn't know where the mirrors were for, didn't know what they were named, really wasn't sure of the location of the ignition button. It's like I'd be pointing her to a business requirement, right? If I just gave her the manual to the car, right? Or to a file, a file spec sheet or something, then what I'm really doing is I'm handing off what I'm asking her to do without a shared understanding. Notice I also didn't tell her that the key fob has a remote sensor built in that must connect to the car's built-in technology that must connect to the ignition switch, must connect to the battery, should trigger the starter so it sends a signal to a relay. Well, you get the idea, right? I'll explain it to her like she's three years old. And if I do that, describing the behavior and language that she understands, she should understand what is acceptable, what conditions are acceptable to start the car. And for that matter, if we describe this behavior by outlining the guardrails, the boundaries, and the expectations to the folks designing how the car actually starts, they'll have a better understanding of the user expectation and how to solve that need, right? So now, if, if it were that simple just to get her to clean her room by these kinds of descriptions, we'd be in pretty good shape, but hey, you know. Now, we have covered the concept of describing the behavior, but we have to take it at least one step further here. OK, I didn't describe this behavior from the perspective of her car. I used her voice, the user voice. And when you do this, so now she can translate it in her own words in first person. So, wow, did we just close the loop on the user story? You, you're already a pro if you got the idea that she can now describe to me from her point of view as a 16 year old new driver. I need to start the car so I can go get my own bag of chips. Well, I could even break the value phrase of this so that part in this story by simply saying so I can back out of the driveway and I can save the value of getting her own bag of chips for another split story at another time. Right. So now what we're saying here is that by describing the expected behavior and maybe even demonstrating the expected behavior, we can gain a shared understanding of the expectation. So let's go back to what we mean by acceptance criteria. Notes about what the story must do so the product owner can accept it as complete. I'll leave you to your own conclusions about how the team could benefit from notes that describe the expected behavior of what we're asking them to do. 
from the user's perspective. Now, acceptance criteria strategies can range from lists to images and test scripts. Yeah, test scripts. Acceptance criteria really to me is test scripts, but it might not work all the time for you guys, whatever it is that you're working on. And I'm not talking about the kinds of test scripts and the way maybe you're thinking about them, though. Like I'm thinking more like UAT scripts rather than integration test scripts or unit test scripts, because those are really um, those are really used for the purposes of the dev team to validate that their code works. Right. Um, when I'm thinking of the user standpoint, that's where I'm thinking about the UAT test scripts here. OK, so um, there's a wide range of strategies that we can use and it's really up to the team okay the team needs to decide this um, but i can tell you that as a product owner if you're using behavior driven strategies uh, for your stories to complement and supplement that for your acceptance criteria and and you get good at it you're never going to look back um, I can tell you that I love the idea of describing the behavior that we're expecting from the user perspective to help us set expectations around what we're asking for. Again, there's nothing wrong with not using behavior-driven methods, which, you know, have actual small scripts to use as your acceptance criteria. Sometimes just a bulleted list of observations is enough, and sometimes just a statement of what you're looking for is going to suffice. Remember, you want a testable, observable outcome. So, the main anti-pattern I think you want to defend against is turning it into a guessing game or a handoff situation. Keep in mind that you're the product owner, and the product owner must understand not only what is being asked of the team on behalf of the user, but how you're going to accept the work so we can stay true to our basic responsibility of maximizing the value of the work produced by the team. We're not going to maximize the uh, work produced by the team if we're asking them to rework it or if we're rejecting it, right? Um, we have to help them, we have to help the team uh, understand us, and we have to absolutely protect the concept and the idea of leaning toward progress. Now, I want to land this plane here and summarize this journey today. First, as a product owner, we owe it to the team to provide clarity around what we're asking them to do. When you're asking them to, the team to produce something in the product, the more clear you are on helping them understand what it's going to take for you to accept the work, the better off you are. You're going to reduce that rework, right? Second, describing behavior is a great way to help them understand the outcomes that you're expecting. What we don't want to do is just move the goalposts on them and reject the story just because they couldn't read our mind, right? So remember, developers think differently than you do. But if we can explain behaviors in a simple-to-read language that a three-year-old can understand, you know, we're probably going to increase our chances of making sure we're getting what we want out of this thing, okay? And finally... Everything in agility is client-centric. Uh, it's customer-centric approach. The qualified actor is the user of the system, and theirs is the expectation for us to meet. So keep it in an empathetic user voice from start to finish, and you're going to come out on top. I guess now you realize why I've been coaching you now going into the fifth season of this podcast on terms like scenario, precondition, trigger, postcondition, domain language, reinforcing these concepts, I believe into your team language and your approach is going to improve your practice, going to help your team become more of a high performing team. You're going to become a better product owner, which is what I'm hoping to help you with here. Uh, so we've scratched the surface on acceptance criteria in this episode. I'm coming out with some help videos soon on this topic you and your team can use 
if you sign up as a patron on Patreon, you can access all of the videos, not just the ones that are that you're seeing on the general public YouTube page. I've heard that some teams are using the podcast to actually drive breakout sessions, and the videos are designed to just do to do just that. Okay, um, I think that is where we can make the most impact to help each other. Hey, don't forget to find Planet Product Owner now on LinkedIn. Tell some friends and help spread the word about how this podcast has helped you. Of course, if it has helped you, uh, I hope this was helpful to you. Until next time, have a safe and fun lean journey, my friends.